The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 50 The Siege of Orléans and Joan of Arc Our story this time begins with the Treaty of Troyes in the year 1420. King Henry V of England's successes in the north of France enabled England to make demands of the French, which tipped the balance of the ongoing Hundred Years' War in favour of the English. The Hundred Years' War is a retrospective name for the various battles between England and France throughout the 14th and 15th centuries. The cause for the tension between this period very much stemmed from the value to the English of French lands that they claimed should be subject to them, whereas the French wanted the English completely off of the continent and restricted to the island of Great Britain. Often it would be the lands within Normandy and Aquitaine that were the ones that were more influenced by the English than others. And in order to try to reclaim or secure these lands, King Edward III of England, the great-grandfather of King Henry V, made a claim to the throne of France. He legitimised his claim by being the last remaining grandson of King Philip IV of France. But the French crowned his first cousin once removed, who reigned as King Philip VI of France. This was part of England's justification for their invasion of France, and this led to a period of increased tensions for over seven decades, leading up to the Treaty of Troyes. King Henry V of England renewed the assault on France, which at the time was in the midst of a civil war. The French king was Charles VI, and Charles was mentally very fragile. Charles slipped in and out of mental illness and was incapable of ruling France, so representatives of the duchies of Burgundy and Orléans started vying for control of the regency. The rivalry between the two duchies would escalate into a civil war. Those loyal to Burgundy were referred to as the Burgundians and those loyal to Orléans were referred to as the Armagnacs. England were the enemies of France and the Armagnacs held the power in France when Henry first invaded. This made an alliance with the English quite attractive for the Burgundians who also sought to get the Armagnacs out of Paris. The leader of the Burgundians was John the Fearless and he successfully took control of Paris in 1419 while the English recaptured lost lands of Normandy and its capital city Rouen. 
things were looking bad for the Armagnacs. This allowed King Henry V of England to corner the mentally unstable King Charles VI of France into the Treaty of Troyes in 1420. This treaty would disregard Charles VI's son, the Dauphin, who was also called Charles. The Dauphin would be now declared as illegitimate and be denied the inheritance of the throne of France on his father's death. Instead, King Henry would be allowed to marry King Charles's daughter Catherine of Valois and therefore any children that they would have together would be the legitimate successors to the throne of France. So it seemed that at last, after almost a century, the French crown would pass into the English royal family. Henry and Catherine would have a son together in England named Henry, who would therefore be in line to become the King of England and the King of France. Henry would then return to France to support the Burgundians in their ongoing battles with the Armagnacs who remained loyal to the Dauphin. Disastrously, King Henry V died of dysentery while campaigning in France at just 35 years of age. With Henry's passing, gone was the ruthlessly aggressive figurehead at the front of the English campaign. When King Charles VI of France died shortly afterwards, the English and the Burgundians declared the infant child King Henry VI of England as the new King of France. King Henry V's younger brother, John of Lancaster, Duke of Bedford, would become the regent in France for the new king, although the Armagnacs refused to recognise the Lancastrians as the rulers of France. The Duke of Burgundy was now Philip the Good, who had inherited his title from his father, John the Fearless, who had died back in 1419. Bedford, Henry VI's regent in France, would marry Philip the Good's younger sister, Anne of Burgundy, to further cement the alliance against the Armagnacs. However, in the years following the death of King Henry V, the English Parliament became more reluctant to invest in the war with the French. Bedford did his absolute best to continue successfully campaigning in France and keeping the Burgundians on side. At the Battle of Agincourt back in 1415, King Henry V of England infamously ordered the murder of most of the French prisoners of war during the battle. One of the French prisoners whose life was spared was Charles, Duke of Orléans. Orléans was the city that was the origin of the Armagnac movement, which fell from dominance in France after Henry V's invasion of Normandy, when the Burgundians expelled the Armagnacs from Paris. Orléans's location and symbolism was of strategical importance And if the English could take Orléans, then the eventual total conquest of France would not be out of the question. One of the men who had fought alongside King Henry V at Agincourt was Thomas Montague, the 4th Earl of Salisbury. After Henry's death in 1422, Salisbury would continue to campaign in France on behalf of the English, before returning back to England later in the decade. Salisbury then returned to France 
1428 in order to campaign again. And this was at around the time that Bedford, Henry V's brother, was planning to further battle against the Armagnacs. It appears that Bedford's original plan was to head west from Paris in a direction of Angers. But it appears that Salisbury may have had other ideas and decided to turn in the direction of Orléans. This could have been a smokescreen from Bedford even as he knew it was questionable in the laws of chivalry to steal the possessions of an imprisoned man. But we may never really know the the real truth behind Salisbury's change of strategy. What we do know is that Orléans was a very attractive conquest for the English for all of the reasons already mentioned. The Siege of Orléans The city of Orléans sits on the Loire River, which flows westwards through the cities of Blois, Tours and Nantes, before emptying into the Bay of Biscay. Control of this waterway was very important. With Salisbury now committed to his attack on Orléans, he would now look to close off access to the city along the Loire River from both upstream and downstream. Salisbury went downstream to capture the river settlements of Mung and Beaugency, while William de la Pole, the first Duke of Suffolk, went up the river to capture the settlement of Jargeau. This meant that the English could cross the Loire River to the south bank and block off the bridge that connected the city of Orléans, which was on the north bank, to support from the south, which was controlled by the Armagnacs. The siege of the city was now in place and the English army was now also joined by their Burgundian supporters. This all took place in October of 1428. It was not a huge surprise in the grand scheme of things for Orléans to be attacked. It was the city where the Armagnac movement originated even though the Armagnacs had established a new power base further south in the city of Bourges. Orléans was a walled city well fortified and aware of its own attractiveness as a target, not least of all to the Burgundians during the French Civil War and the English who had been looking to continuously push their influence southward since King Henry V conquered Normandy ten years earlier. Despite the English blocking the route into the city via the bridge across the Loire River, The bridge itself would not fall to the English with ease due to there being a fortification at the southern end of the bridge called Les Tourelles. Access to Les Tourelles was via a drawbridge. The garrison of over 2,000 men at Orléans was under the command of Jean d'Orléans, Count of Dunois. Dunois was the half-brother of the captive Charles, Duke of Orléans who, if you remember, was captured by the English at the Battle of Agincourt 13 years earlier. Both Dunois and the Duke were grandsons of King Charles V of France through his son Louis I, Duke of Orléans, but Dunois was an illegitimate son which led to him being nicknamed the Bastard of Orléans. Dunois led 
the garrison to defending Les Tourelles against the English assault, but the English assault was too much and they eventually took the fortification. The French held the English off long enough to be able to destroy parts of the bridge itself as they retreated back towards the city, which meant that the English would have to rebuild these sections of the bridge in order to access the city from the south. Before they could do this, they would need to occupy and repair Les Tourelles, and so they did this while they contemplated how to take control of what remained of the bridge. Salisbury would enter Les Tourelles himself in order to draw up his plans, but it was while he was in the fortification that the French attacked it with cannon fire. It was while Les Tourelles was under attack that Salisbury was struck in the face by part of the wall and this meant that he had to be withdrawn from the battle and taken back to the relative safety of Mung to recover. He didn't recover though and he died on the 3rd of November from his wounds. Command of the English forces passed to William Delapole, the 1st Earl of Suffolk. With Salisbury's passing, the momentum of the siege died down as Suffolk settled in for the long haul. This played against the English due to the fact that reinforcements and supplies started arriving in defence of the city. Suffolk would commission the construction of forts to the west of the city on the north bank of the river over the course of the winter, but he couldn't fortify elsewhere due to a lack of numbers. This enabled Orléans to still receive some supplies which helped to prolong the siege, but the supplies that did make it were not really enough. The English army also required supplies, and a convoy of wagons containing weaponry and food was attacked by the French, supported by their Scottish allies. Due to the carried foodstuff being barrels of herrings, this exchange is known as the Battle of the Herrings, and the French and Scottish alliance was defeated. Not only was the convoy unable to be stopped, but also the defeated French force was not able to reach Orléans as a consequence of their defeat, meaning the city had to suffer even more. Dunois was now desperate and was willing to surrender the city to the Burgundians. The Burgundians were interested in negotiating, but Bedford was not, and he wanted to sack Orléans completely. So the Burgundians withdrew from the siege. Nonetheless, the city was still on the brink of collapse. Joan of Arc Had the English and the Burgundians not run the royalist Armagnacs out of Paris, the new king would have been the Dauphin Charles. Since the death of Charles VI in 1422, the crown was disputed between King Henry VI of England and the Dauphin, who was now proclaimed by the Armagnacs as King Charles VII. However, Charles was not particularly proactive at answering the call for action against the English, who were now close to seizing the city of Orléans and unlocking the path to the Armagnac strongholds in the south. That is until the arrival of a humble peasant girl at the court of Charles VII, which changed the course of history. The peasant girl's name was Joan, and she was born in the east of France in a village called Domremy, 
As she entered her teenage years during the mid-1420s, Jones started seeing visions of Christian angels and martyrs and claimed that they were giving her instructions. The instructions were telling her that she had been selected to be the saviour of the French. Joan continued to see such visions for the next three years and so she then felt compelled to act and looked to find the nearest French army unit to instruct them of what she felt was her calling. Of course, she wasn't taken seriously when she did unveil her story and she was powerless to do anything significant, but she did not give up. She would return to the army and persuade them to give her an audience with the commanders. There, she reiterated once again that she had been instructed to save France, and she may have even predicted the occurrence and the result of the Battle of the Herrings, in which a combined French and Scottish force were defeated, attempting to head off an English supply convoy. This seemed to be enough to convince the commanders that there could be some form of divine interference, and so they agreed to transport Joan to the court of Charles VII, some 200 miles away, which was currently in the west at a place called Chinon. When she arrived in the company of Charles, Joan once again explained her visions. Charles was somewhat desperate for some hope in his precarious situation as the new king of a fragile France, and some historians think that he was more open-minded to Joan's claims of seeing visions due to the fact that his own father, the now deceased Charles VI, was also prone to seeing visions. Joan was so focused and determined to carry out what she believed to be her undeniable destiny to save France that Charles was somehow convinced to roll the dice on her. So Joan was granted the ability to travel with a contingent of the French army that were taking supplies to the people of Orléans. With the loss of the Burgundians from the siege, the French felt empowered to fight back against the English, but they were still highly cautious of the English that had made their existence miserable for the last five months. Joan would petition the English to relinquish the siege, warning them to return all French possessions to France. Of course, there was no way that the English would take such a demand seriously from any French person, least of all a low-born French peasant girl. Joan was able to enter Orléans and she appeared to be ready for frontline battle against the English. Her visions had obviously made her feel unbeatable and so her faith made her fearless. She arrived in Orléans like a breath of fresh air, the likes of which had not been experienced before. This diminutive young lady with infallible confidence was quite unbelievably entering the middle of a ghastly siege with the blessing of the French King Charles VII. The people of Orléans were desperately trying to break the siege and they were willing to put their faith into anything that would help their cause. Joan would reportedly speak to the French garrison about how God was in their favour and she would endeavour to appeal to the French soldiers to behave in a manner befitting of God's favour, such as refraining from swearing. The French commanders were wary of Joan's demands to throw everything at the English in order to break the siege, but they would be right to listen to her as the English were vulnerable without their Burgundian allies 
and English fortresses were already feeling the pressure of the French attacks in any case. Eventually, the French decided to put all of their energy into breaking the siege, and they were successful. The English abandoned Les Tourelles and abandoned their western forts, retreating to the north. In the midst of the battle, Joan was reportedly on the front line, fighting in full battle armour alongside the soldiers of the French garrison. Her banner displayed a pious image of Jesus Christ alongside the French arms, the fleur de lis. Different accounts tell different stories about how she was struck by a projectile on the helmet while scaling a wall which split her helmet, while others describe how she was struck by an arrow before being treated and rejoining her comrades on the front line again. Whether the French had the English near enough defeated by the time of her arrival or not, it does appear that Joan played an important part in lifting the morale and the belief of the French army at Orléans to a greater or lesser degree. The English withdrew to their settlements on the Loire River and the French decided that even though Orléans had been spared, that they needed to capitalise on their momentum and terrorise the English garrisons. In the month following the lifting of the siege on Orléans, the French scored a further victory at Pâté, but this time Joan of Arc stayed with the rearguard. The French were now gathering pace and self-belief with volunteers now joining the ranks of the army. The English retreated to Paris, leaving the door open for the Royalist Armagnacs to move into Burgundian-held territory. The aim was to march on the city of Reims, where Joan encouraged Charles VII to officially be crowned to further bolster the French morale. The significance of the city of Reims was that it was a stronghold of the Burgundians, as it was to the east of Paris. After successfully marching on Reims, the disinherited Dauphin from the Treaty of Troyes nine years earlier was now officially crowned King Charles VII of France, and the next objective would be to attack Paris and remove the English. Hesitancy caused the French to miss the opportunity to attack Paris while it may have been at its most vulnerable, and the English and the Burgundians were able to assemble enough force to resist the French attack. The French army being led by their King Charles VII and their brave talisman Joan of Arc attempted to besiege the capital city but were unsuccessful. Joan herself was struck by a crossbow bolt in the leg which led to her being removed from the battle, something that she fiercely resented and resisted. The French continued to be inspired by this brave icon of the Christian faith within their ranks. Dubbed the Maid of Orléans, Joan of Arc, still a teenager despite having been through so much. In contrast, the English would associate her with Satan in order to rally their troops against her without repercussions. It was quite embarrassing for the English to concede that they were having the pressure put on them following the intervention of a peasant girl. Over the course of the winter at the end of 1429, hostilities were temporarily halted and King Charles VII took this opportunity 
to elevate Joan and her family to the rank of French nobility as a reward for all of the positive influence that she had had on the French cause and the cause of the French king. When the seasons changed during the year 1430, hostilities resumed as the days became warmer and longer. The Burgundian leader, Philip the Good, had learned that the town of Compiègne had refused to give itself up to the Burgundians and therefore planned to besiege it. As soon as Joan of Arc learned of Philip's intentions, she attempted to rally an army to come to the aid of the town. Joan was only part of a small force that went to save Compiègne, but her mere presence was enough for the townspeople to have renewed hope as by now she was viewed upon like a celebrity due to her connection with God. The siege was being overseen by John II, Count of Ligny, an ally of the Burgundians and a highly respected governor. Joan had managed to get inside the town, but the combined forces of Burgundy and England were too much on this occasion, and the town was overpowered. Joan was pulled down from her horse and captured all along swearing her loyalty to King Charles VII. Joan was now a captive of the Burgundians, and the English would plead with the Burgundians to hand her over to them. But the Burgundians knew that they had a valuable prisoner and would demand a price for her. In the meantime, Joan was not willing to accept her incarceration and repeatedly attempted to escape. Her most famous attempt to escape involved her leaping from a 70-foot high window into a dry moat. If this is true, then she's lucky to have survived it, but it appears that she was injured as she was definitely recaptured. She was turned over to the English for the price of 10,000 livres tournois. The livre tournois was a unit of currency that was an alternative to the écu with the écu being the currency demanded in the ransom for King John II of France's release from English captivity during the previous century. The English paid the fee, and Joan was transferred to the city of Rouen, which was a major centre of English control since it was captured by King Henry V over ten years previous. After a long period of captivity in Rouen, Joan's troll for heresy was organised. Joan was kept in chains and remained under constant guard during her imprisonment at Rouen. The Trial of Joan The Trial of Joan of Arc began on the 13th of January 1431, where her military career was openly declared in what could be described as a glorious story. The manner of the way in which she carried herself during this period was also described. She was a woman who wore armour and rode a horse while wielding a sword in the same manner as any other mounted soldier or knight. Joan would defend her actions by declaring that the English were illegally in France while the English were seeking an admission from Joan about the number of Englishmen she had killed. According to Joan, whatever she did, was done in the name of God. While under the intense scrutiny of the troll, Joan would counter the English interrogation by stating that the voices in her head had confirmed God's will and that if she was a criminal, 
it would be God's judgment that would confirm this and not the judgment of the English. The English were determined to wear her down. Joan was alone to defend herself and being kept in the most restrictive conditions. No known attempts were made to rescue her by King Charles VII. No defence council was representing her. Joan was pressured into a submission to renounce the voices that had guided her and agreed to pay a penance for her crimes against the English. She would agree to dress as a female and carry out recantations, which would be a vocal renouncement of her questionable guidance, the voices in her head. Her sentence was life imprisonment, which was not an unusual punishment for prisoners of war. It is possible that she was sexually abused while wearing female clothing while in captivity, and this may have led to her being found wearing men's clothing again, although we cannot be sure whether this was a set-up or not in order to condemn her completely. She had signed a document to declare that she had renounced the voices in her head. But of course, being a low-born peasant, there is no way that she would have been able to read the declaration. The fact that she may have declared that she was hearing the voices again along with her apparent choice of male clothing again was enough for the English to declare that she had reneged on her declaration and was now sentenced to death. On the 30th of May 1431, Joan was taken to the old marketplace in Rouen where it was proclaimed to her that she was a relapsed heretic and this was the reason for her legal execution as it was deemed a secular crime. She was burned at the stake in a very gruesome public execution. It is reported that her remains were burned again to prevent any of her remains becoming religious relics. There is even reports of her heart remaining intact, but this is surely just the stuff of legend. She was just 19 years old. In the aftermath of Joan's execution, the momentum of the French against the English that she played an important role in continued. Four years after Joan's execution, Henry V's brother, the Duke of Bedford, the English regent in France, died and the Burgundians defected to the French from the English. This swung the Hundred Years' War dramatically in the favour of France but it would be correct to say that the brief period in which Joan of Arc was directly involved in the French fight back was the beginning of the turn of the tide against the English, who were the dominant force in France and well on the way to securing the crown of France on the King of England's head. Joan of Arc was found guilty of heresy and was executed accordingly in the city of Rouen. The collapse of English territory in France continued under King Charles VII and in 1449 the French were able to recapture the city of Rouen which had been taken by King Henry V of England around 30 years earlier. This enabled the French to obtain the official documents of the trial of Joan of Arc and an investigation into the validity of the trial would come into effect in the following years. The significance of this was for the fact that Joan was directly involved in the crowning of King Charles VII, 
so the clearance of Joan's name would further validate Charles as the correct King of France and would show the French cause against the English as religiously just. By 1456, the trial of Joan of Arc was declared as invalid and her family would at least know that the record had been set straight. The declaration of Joan's innocence was made by Pope Calixtus III. It would be another 400 years before a new movement emerged in France that would petition for Joan to be canonised and it would take until 1920 for this process to be completed by which time the Pope Benedict XV declared that Joan could now be referred to as Saint Joan of Arc, with her feast day being on the 30th of May, the very same day as her execution. Thanks very much for listening to this latest episode of the History of the World podcast, all about the Siege of Orléans and Joan of Arc. Um, a very tragic story about a very heroic young woman and uh, the real tables turning in this whole uh, war, uh, this hundred years war, I should say. And uh, the English were dominant until that period when Joan of Arc came along and then the, the suddenly the momentum switched and uh, the French still recognise her to this very day as uh as a very, very important part of their country's cultural history uh, as a consequence of what she did. Um, we don't really know why she's called Joan of Arc. We don't know what Arc really is. Um, some historians suspect it might be um, a reference to her family rather than the place she came from. We know she was born in Dom Remy. Nothing nothing in that name suggests the word arc so we don't really know but it's interesting to speculate anyway um go and have a bit of research yourself and let me know let me know if you can find out the answer to that one now if you appreciate the podcast and you want to help support the podcast you might be pleased to know that you can you can uh, go to the history of the world podcast.com website and click on the patreon link where you can sign up to make a monthly contribution. You can qualify for rewards and get special access to the uh, to the debrief episodes, which are published um, most weeks with the main episode. If you want to get a bit more History of the World podcast and want to know about some of the background uh, of that episode and a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes at the History of the World podcast, then you can um, just by signing up to become a patron. Um, you can also subscribe uh, through Spotify podcasts as well, and then you get um, you get access to uh, the exclusive episodes through Spotify. You can also listen to the original special episodes of the Picts and Snorri Stotlison when uh, these two uh, episodes were originally published. So you can still access them if you are a Spotify uh, Spotify. Uh, subscriber Spotify it's called podcasts for Spotify or Spotify podcast used to be called anchor uh, but now spot Spotify have rebranded it and, and it's uh, and you can subscribe through there for these special episodes we'd like like to welcome in to the history of the world podcast Illuminati um, this time uh, Ken Brown and Justell 
um, both of which have signed up to make monthly contributions. We're very, very grateful to you, and thank you very much. The Ancient World Cup. We're really getting to the end of the Ancient World Cup now. It's been a long, long journey, hasn't it? And uh, we've boiled it down to the last three teams, which means we already know one of our finalists, which uh, were the Ancient Egyptians. We've now just got to find out who their opponents will be in the final. We originally had 64 teams through a process of your votes, your votes, the listeners, um, through Facebook, through the through the official webpage for the History of the World podcast, through the uh, unofficial fan group, um, by which you can go and enter into a chat room, which I'm a part of, so you can actually go and join other History of the World podcast listeners, hot welders as we call you, um, and we're all in one chat room and we can discuss anything history related, so, so why not join me, it's a 24-7 thing, um, so come and join into that, it's at the History of the World podcast Facebook unofficial fan group and you can find the link in the interact section on the History of the World podcast.com website, um, also Twitter and Instagram are the other two voting platforms on which you can join in. And and this week, if you visit any of those four locations, you get the opportunity to vote on the second semi-final between the Romans and the Athenians. So we've got real, real classical European history, the ultimate here, the ancient Rome and ancient Greece. Uh, so the Romans, of course, with their really deep history there from the kingdom to the republic um, to the empire and this vast empire the likes of which the world had never seen before against the Athenians and uh, you know in some respects you can argue that a lot of the success of the Romans was based on the political um, observ observances of the Athenians and, and even you know there, there was even talk of um, Romans actually being sent to Athens to observe their their sort of political uh, style and and incorporate it into their own style. So a real uh, a real battle of the giants there, the Romans versus the Athenians. So go to any of those four locations: Facebook official page, the unofficial fan group, Twitter, and Instagram, and cast your vote from Monday. Listener messages and reviews. I've got a ton of stuff to get through this week, so I'm just going to dive in. Um, Tim has written in saying, your older episodes are not playing and have disappeared from Google Podcasts. I had started from the beginning again and made it to Volume 2, The Battle of Kadesh, jumped back in to listen to the next episode and they were gone from Google. I logged into your website, they are there, but they don't play any ideas. Thanks, Chris. Well, Tim, um, there was a situation a couple of weeks ago where we had to um, we had to sort of change the setup of the podcast episodes um, to incorporate the subscribers' episodes, and and there was a little bit of playing about with the the back catalogue there, and and I do believe it did affect um, some listeners in that they were unable to access some of the episodes. But I've I've gone to Google Podcasts and and all the episodes still appear to be there, 
and um, also um, you can sort of scroll down in Spotify podcasts and and find that you can play the episodes. I, I, I was having a bit of trouble with the website myself, but um, they are still playable. But um, of course, if any of you are struggling with any of the podcast platforms to access the episodes that you want to listen to just write in and I'll see what I can do to help but thank you for the email Tim it's not everyone that bothers writing in so thank you um I've got an email from Jackie that says hello I've been listening to your podcast recently um just starting volume two now and I just wanted to thank you for creating it I found your podcast at a time when I've been dealing with a lot of medical issues and limited mobility and your podcast has made my life a lot better I was getting into history but I was really having a hard time putting it together chronologically and was looking for something just like this now that I just had surgery and I'm stuck in bed a lot it's been really nice to know that I may not be able to do as much as I'd like to right now but at least I can learn and get a really good understanding of the history of the world. It means a lot to have this podcast available and it's definitely improving my daily quality of life. So thank you for all you do. Looking forward to listening to the rest of it warmly. Jackie, uh, Jackie, um, these e- emails like this probably give me the most pleasure, I would suggest. So thank you so much for writing in and telling me. Um, long time uh, friend of the podcast, Eric Young, has written in saying, uh, Hi Chris, I'm a little behind on the podcast, just finished volume 4, episode 46. Uh, you read out a listener comment about translating, transcribing the podcast, but you remarked how much work that would be. I was unclear whether the listener was suggesting that you could translate your episodes into another language, but they would still be audio pre- presentations or if she was merely suggesting that you could transcribe them into a different language in text form. If the listener was suggesting the former, that that project would be a huge endeavour since you've produced so many episodes. However, if she was suggesting merely transcribing them into a foreign language, there is an app for that. Check out Scribe Buddy. If you have any interest in this as a potential future project, I don't know how well the app works and I have no affiliation with it. I do know it purports to have the ability to transcribe any audio or video file into text, which can then be translated into a foreign language. In any event, keep up the good work with the podcast. I'm also curious to know if you're contemplating doing a medieval World Cup like you did the ancient World Cup. Well, the first thing you mentioned was about the transcription of the podcast and then the translation of the podcast. Well, um, anyone that um, approaches me about um, translating the podcast into another language, um, I'm sure they would have to understand it would be a huge long-term commitment and it would have to be a labour of love. And um, I just don't know... um, you know, sometimes I think anyone that does approach me may not appreciate the the scale of of what they're asking for. And of course, with all of the energy that I put in, just put into the English language version of this podcast, I just don't have any time to spare whatsoever to support such a project. So I'm not saying no, but um, I'm 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 trying to be as pragmatic as possible when answering people that are suggesting that they could do it and and that's really it um as for the ancient world cup um yep 
it's coming to a close and are we going to do something else? I don't know. I mean, the Medieval World Cup, I think, would only be correct to do that after we've completed the Medieval volume so that everyone has got a good knowledge of what they're voting for. Um, but I was thinking maybe along the lines of maybe an Ancient Warriors World Cup where we get all the great warriors, all the great military leaders of ancient times and put them into a tournament and see who comes out on top. So, um, yeah, maybe that would be an idea. But if anyone else has got any great ideas, I'd be very interested to know. So just uh, make sure you write in. Thanks very much, Eric, as usual. Uh, Zoltan Gal uh, has written in um, and he's... Um, he said he's um, created, he said, greetings again. I'm truly honoured and happy that my previous email was able to reach you. As you may recall, I've previously mentioned my interest in prehistory. I recently started a little project that revolved around the volume one of your podcast. With my limited and humble graphic skills, I designed a human evolutionary chart, which I think from a listener's perspective could be really helpful when putting the big picture together, especially for first time listeners. Since the chart is in its early stages, I'm seeking your expert opinion and feedback on it. If there's anything missing or inaccurate information, please let me know. I understand that you are busy with your podcast, but any feedback you can provide at any time would be greatly appreciated. Furthermore, I plan to enrich the chart in the near future with cultures, fossils and even migration routes. Best regards, Zolly. Well, um, I did take a look at your evolutionary tree, Zolly, and I thought it was a very uh, solid um a solid um chart and um i think definitely continue with it um it's it's always difficult for me to criticize the the nature of the chart because we you know there's so many different points of view about how the the chart relates to each section but i think you've done a very strong job with it zolly and and certainly continue with it and uh and you're, of course, you're welcome to publish it on the social media platforms. Uh, I'm sure other people will get a lot of pleasure from looking at it. Uh, Charlene Berger has written in and put, um, I love your podcast. Just restarted from the beginning. I wanted to send you a link to an article. I just read from the New York Times online articles. Um, you can probably access it directly. It was posted today, March the 7th, written by Cole Zimmer, entitled Ancient DNA Reveals History of Hunter-Gatherers in Europe. It presents evidence of eight previously unknown populations of early Europeans. Um, well, thank you, Charlene. Um, I've not accessed uh, the article, but maybe you could post a link on the social media pages and, and we'll all get to enjoy it. So, like, as with anyone... Um, if you want to send me something, don't just send it to me. Send it to the whole hot world of community. We all want to see it. Um, but thank you, Charlene. Um, Ian Van Alphen has written in saying, uh, Hi, Chris, I've been meaning to send you my gratitude for the episode you made about New Netherlands. That was some months ago I made that episode. Um, it was very interesting to hear your uptake on the matter and tell the world this little part of our national history, a, bit, a part which isn't known by many of my fellow countrymen, I'm sure. Um, the thanks are long overdue, but I felt obliged to send them because it must have been quite uh, an undertaking for you. And, I, and for that, I'm impressed and grateful. Now that medieval Europe is finished, I'm very excited to know what the rest of the world was up to in this same period. Can't wait for that. Please, please keep it up with your great project and know that a lot of people's journeys home through snow and rain are a lot more bearable thanks to your storytelling. By the way, I loved the trip down memory lane. I, I guess, Ian, you're um, referring 
to the um to the retrospective special last week um but thanks Ian you you you're from the Netherlands and um you've um you you requested New Netherlands as your special episode and it, and it was a great pleasure to write that episode because um I I have had recent close connections with the city of New York. I, I do love the city, and uh, and it's fascinating to know more about its history. And uh, I was able to acquire a, a very decent book, which helped me to write that episode. It's called The Colony of New Netherland, a Dutch Settlement in 17th Century America by Yap Jacobs. Um, so if you're interested in finding out more, you could do a lot worse than buy that book, I should imagine. Uh, but thanks again for that email, Ian. Um, bear with me, moving on. Uh, Ken Brown sent a message uh, saying, Hi Chris, been listening to you for over three years and never gotten around to subscribing on Patreon. I think that I've had more than my money's worth now. It's, it is perfect for me, the right balance of accurate impartial history that is easy to follow while doing stuff in my workshop. I've always been interested in history, but growing up in such a young country as New Zealand, it's always seemed removed. How, fortunately, I lived overseas for a while and... Um, and could visit some of these places. My favourites have been Petra, Masada, Delphi, Rome, lots of the UK. My all-time favourite was Marathon. As part of my midlife crisis, 12 years ago, I ran the Marathon to Athens. Uh, marathon, having never been, um, having never run before. I thought, that's something else. Um, well done. Uh, well done indeed, Ken. Um he goes on to say, I ran the marathon to Athens Marathon, having never run before. I researched it to fully immerse myself in the experience. I was looking forward to your marathon episode and was um, a little surprised that you related the version of only Pheidippides returning to Athens rather than the whole army, which was my favourite bit. However, that highlighted for me that there are many versions of what happened in history and we may never know the exact details. I do like the new unscripted format with what happened on this day. Keep up the good work, Chris. It's a monumental task for you. It's become a valued part of my leisure time over the years. My all-time favourite bit is where you call everyone C S as you sign off. Uh, we had a talk show host say the same thing to our Prime Minister last week, although he said, see you next Tuesday rather than see you next time. I'm looking forward to commissioning my own episode one day. I've accrued enough karma. Cheers, Ken. Ken, I've got absolutely no, no idea what you're talking about at all. Liam um, has written in uh, saying, Dear Chris, I write this from Mississippi and I want to say I love the podcast. I found it in the fall of 2021. And started a journey to catch up. I finally did in January of this year. I just want to say I love your work and the objective view you provide to the best of your ability. I cannot wait to dive more into North and South America's pre-Columbian history in this volume. I also wanted to say if you need help making any maps, I'd love to. I used to make them a lot as a kid and teenager and have always been fond of drawing up maps. Best of luck with the podcast as it continues and keep up the great work from Liam. Anyone that follows me um, on my website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com, uh, Liam, um, will discover that I've fallen a long way behind with the maps and it's um, 
I'm just having trouble finding the time to cram all of this work in. I, I don't really know how I kept up in the first place, but um, nonetheless, I'm struggling a little bit. But I, I will get there in the end. But it's just, uh, it's just, it's just quite tricky for me. So, like, if you, if anyone wants to draw up a map, um, you know, as as you've suggested, um, feel free. You know, I'll, I'll take a look at anything. Um, Dave uh, Moran has written in, putting, Dear Chris, thank you so much for all of your beautiful hard work. The podcast, uh, this podcast has been an eye-opening journey through history, a subject which I've always been fascinated by, and now see how little I actually knew. Took me a couple of months to catch up, catch it all up as I would listen for the whole of my work days. Been on break since December, so I've just had enough episodes to get through a few more work days. Keep up the good work. I appreciate the journey you've been taking me along. Thanks much, a Canadian fan. Um, well, thank you very much, Dave. Um, anyway, that was a lot of messages. So uh, thank you so much for those of you who stayed with me and listened to them all. I'm going to sign off now. And um, we'll next week, um, we're going to be looking at the Teutonic Knights. So it's going to be our first look at that as we get towards the end of our European episodes. Um, the fascinating story of the Teutonic Knights. And uh, we're going to be talking about the Battle on the Ice. So this is a battle that took place on a frozen lake. So that will be next week's episode. So join me then. Until then, thanks for listening and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.